Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey, this is Mark Trichel with another episode of With Flying Colors. I'm excited to have a previous guest back today, Deborah Arndell, the president of Armor Advisory Services. Deborah, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Mark. Thank you. Glad to hear it. So we had you on one other time, and we talked about many, many topics on Bank Secrecy Act. And today we're going to chat a little bit about NCUA Letter to Credit Unions 22-CU08, the subject of which is risk-based approach to assessing customer relationships and conducting customer due diligence. This letter came out earlier in July, and I shot a note to Deborah saying, hey, maybe this would be something good to have a follow-up conversation on. So, But before we get into that, Deborah, if you could give a little bit more background about your background relative to, I know you spent some time in the federal government and now we're out consulting, but give a little bit of a summary, if you will. Absolutely. Uh, well, if somebody wants to see my entire background, they can go out to the website regulatoryarmor.com and get the full bio. But for our purposes here, I've been in financial services for about 25 years, just under half of that within the industry, doing the work of BSA officers and compliance officers and ERM roles. In addition to that, I then went up to auditing and eventually to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, overseeing compliance for that agency conducting exams, doing that sort of work. But then in late 2016, I left to start my own advisory practice, taking all of those years of experience and saying, you know, what can I do now for institutions to help them not have stress around examinations, to help them be more strategic and innovative and build sustainable, effective programs that give them confidence around regulatory visits. Very good. And I know you've worked in some very large banks. You've worked in banks and credit unions. We've had a couple of mutual clients that we've worked with. And again, I just thought, you know, it'd be a great opportunity to chat about this letter to credit unions and the associated joint statement. And so the NCUA's letter is short and the statement's a little bit longer. And I'm sure there's more devil in the details. And I'm sure you might have some thoughts relative to that. But essentially, NCUA's letter states that the agencies have prepared a joint statement clarifying our longstanding position that banks and credit unions must take a risk-based approach to assess individual customer member risk. And they go on a little bit later to talk about the fact that they should not just carte blanche reject somebody because they're in a particular line of business. I'm paraphrasing there. So those were two key takeaways from this letter that I thought might be worth expanding on. And you might have some more things you'd like to go into. So relative to NCUA's letter and the joint statement, Deborah, what do you think this means for financial institutions and how should they, if anything, adjust what they're doing based on this clarification? Well, to address the first question, what does this mean? To me, this is nothing but a reset back to the original intention of the BSA AML examination manual produced by the FFIEC, which was meant as an examination tool that, again, if examiners are looking at these things and a bank could take the same manual and look at them the same way, they should come to the same conclusions. So it was a really great tool for institutions to utilize to figure out, okay, where are some areas that we might want to evaluate somebody or something as a higher risk 
either person or product or service. So within that examination manual, the FFIC has laid out what they consider to be higher with an ER, higher risk products and services, as well as higher risk like persons and entities. And I suspect what's happened over time, which is pretty common, is that this higher risk factor, whether that's, again, a product, service, person, or entity, has become high risk overall. And these two lines have been skewed between a factor or a component may be higher risk, and suddenly that makes the member or their business high risk. So I think some of it's around terminology, that higher risk and high risk, those can be confused, particularly over time as you start to go through exams and you don't want to have findings. It's like, how do we get rid of some of these like higher risk issues? I'd like to see the term change to like elevated risk or something that's not quite as easily interchangeable. But the second thing is I think human nature is we immediately make connections between things that may not be connectable. So for example, if you say, oh, I'm from New York City, that must mean something very specific to someone who's not from New York. And then within New York City, depending on which borough you're from, people like, oh, you're from the Bronx, you're from Manhattan, that means something to them. What car you drive, what school you attended, what kind of job you have. People make connections on about what that means about you as a person. And that's exactly to me what's happening here is, oh, you're a non-governmental organization or a charity, you're high risk. Well, that's not necessarily true. For example, you could have a local NGO like Freebird in New York City that helps children with cancer versus a larger NGO that's domestic like Feeding America or an international NGO and people are like, oh, it's international, it must be high risk. Well, no, you have Amnesty International, Doctors Without Borders. You have a lot of NGOs that are international that have been accredited through the United Nations programs and also through U.S. AIDS Cooperative Organization. So just because something is an NGO doesn't make it high risk. It just means it's a higher risk for potential money laundering or terrorist financing. And you have more work to do to figure out if they are, in fact, overall high risk. And that includes a lot of factors. And so what's happened is because we've skewed these lines, entities have just said, institutions have said, we're just not going to open accounts for members that have some of these factors, making an assumption that they're just high risk. We don't want to deal with it. We don't want to deal with the controls. And so we're going to not open those accounts. And that's a disservice not only to these potential members, but also to the organization, to the financial institution, because they may be losing very good members simply because one aspect of that member may be higher or have elevated risk. That's a fantastic explanation. I love the comparison to where you're from. I get the connection there. The word higher with an ER compared to high risk. So just from the 10,000 foot level, money service businesses as a category, would that be one that would fit this conversation that there may be money service businesses that you want to consider high risk and there may be some that make sense? Is that a good analogy or comparison or is that a bad comparison? You have money service businesses become a dirty word because they are acting as a financial institution that is within a financial institution. So if you're at X bank and you have money service businesses, then you have to really have better controls in place that MSB has to have a risk assessment. You have to go and at least most institutions visit them routinely. That's a lot of effort, right? You have to really monitor their transactions to make sure they're not utilizing that business as for purposes of terrorist financing or money laundering. And that's a lot of responsibility. But you have some that are legitimate, that are really trying to help the unbanked, the people that can't get a bank account. 
to have to go and cash their check somewhere else. So they're providing a good service, but yes, you always have those people or businesses that take advantage of those opportunities and utilize them for something illicit or nefarious. And so it's an MSB, it's higher risk, let's do some more homework and figure out, is this an entity that will be good for us or is there something else we need to know that does in fact make it overall high risk and in that case, we don't want it. Got it. I'm on LinkedIn a lot and I read the Wall Street Journal and American Banker and the topic of marijuana businesses. I see a lot of that discussed and I I can sense that more banks and credit unions are serving this higher risk group. Do you think any chance that this guidance coming out might be connected to what's going on in that arena or is that maybe just a coincidence? Because it's caused so much of a reaction from financial institutions, if Again, this is causing a kind of a trigger reminder that there are a lot of entities that you're not banking, but yet you're on board with cannabis banking. Why is that versus you not wanting to handle these? I don't know what the trigger was for this. I have been inside a lot of institutions and I noticed how prevalent some of the conversations are around, oh, well, no, they have a privately owned ATM. We don't want them here. Or they are a cash intensive business, so we don't want that here. And maybe some of this is that we are finding that legitimate entities, again, are unbanked. And part of what you want as a regulator, what I wanted is I wanted to bank as many people as possible, because as long as they're within the financial system where we have regulations, we can identify activity, we can monitor activity, but it's really hard to do that when it's out on a black market or someplace where we can't see it. So to the extent we can get them into the monetary system, I think regulators want to see that. It gives us an opportunity to, again, provide those Polaroids around what's going on at our institution and send those to FinCEN so they can make their movie. But if you don't have access to those entities, you don't have access to those unbanked, a lot of information goes unseen. We also don't want people taken advantage of. And so I think it's really critical that you have them in a regulated entity where some of that oversight is taking place. So I think there are a lot of reasons this may be going on. But I do know that there's been a pushback from institutions to not bank a lot of these members because they have one of these factors on cash intensive businesses are fairly common, but a restaurant in Nebraska does not have the same risk that a restaurant in a high drug trafficking area of Atlanta is going to have. And so we need to really look at these more holistically, just as we as human beings would want somebody to really get to know us before they assign some trait or overall evaluation of us. We would want them to get to know us a little bit better and find out what we're about. We need to do the same thing with these people coming to us trying to get accounts. Why are you here? What is it about you? Tell me a little bit more about the business. Tell me a little bit more about you. A lot of questions that go into due diligence. And I think we've gotten to a point where we don't want to do the homework, but we need to do it. And again, we may be missing out on some really, really great members at credit unions or customers at banks because we've just made these broad policy decisions that again, don't really do service to the monetary system as a whole. Yeah, that's another good comparison. The path of least resistance is easier for someone to have to put all the energy in potentially to take a look at the individual businesses. And I could see where someone might be eliminating a whole group, like you're saying, just because it's going to take a substantial effort and it's easier to say no to all than go through that effort. Like you said, you could be missing out on some real, real fantastic members. And again, they need service. And, And I love the point of getting them into the system as well. 
this was a very big conversation around payday lending that we needed to get these folks into the system because they were being taken advantage of yep. and usury laws were being sealed out as far as the percentage of interest rates and the fees that were associated with these. So if we could get them into the system, that was kind of the goal is how do we get these parties not performing all these banking services outside of the system? In addition to that, Mark, I think another part of this is that financial institutions are trying to avoid BSA violations, and they think if they limit their risk by excluding some of these entities, that that's somehow going to increase their chance of having a good exam and not having the reputational and punitive damages that can come from systemic violation. But again, they're missing out on some really great possible revenue and relationship building. And you have to figure out how do we balance those two things out. And I think they've been in an imbalance for a little bit longer than they should be, which is why we're seeing this level setting, this resetting of this is what we meant. Please stop overreacting. Let's get back to what we intended. And I think that's what the statement's about. Great. So this is a little off topic, but so the concept of outside the system, when I think of that, something else that's that's in the news a lot comes up in my mind, and that's blockchain and utilizing not crypto, but the blockchain element of crypto as part of the banking system or part of moving money around. Yet there is also, it's a little bit less transparent or maybe a lot bit less transparent than being within the system. Jumping ahead five, 10 years, two years, whatever you think, how do you see that from where you sit as the expert in the roles you've played? What are the public policy challenges that we have to face on that topic? Well, I think the issue with blockchain, anything related to digital currency is similar to where we've been historically with anything that was new, is the activity is well beyond or well ahead of the laws. The laws come in after. It's like criminals. They're doing stuff that they've created a new crime before the law can catch up and say, here are the penalties, here are the things we're looking for. It's the same thing here. I mean, you've got fintech, which is just, again, a lot of incredible opportunity with fintech, but you're going to have challenges with it. And, you know, I have been following it in the news and it seemed to be on its upward trajectory. And then we have this bottoming out. And I don't know what the future of that looks like. And I won't even speculate. It's also a very sensitive topic with a lot of people. Sure. Yeah. How do you deal with that as something new? How do you regulate that? How do you protect people then within that process? But the problem is if you don't do something to help regulate it, you have these same situations that you've had historically with payday lending and again, money service businesses is until you bring them into the fold, things happen that people lose a lot of money. They lose their livelihoods. They end up losing their lives. And so the question is ultimately, where is the future of this? What does that look like? I don't know, but I think we do have to figure out what parts work. Do we bring it into the existing regulation? How do we do that? It's a huge process, as you know, Mark, to take an activity and then get it into a law it can take years and sometimes decades. I mean, how long have we been talking about changes to the Community Reinvestment Act, which doesn't apply to credit unions, but how long have we been talking about that? It takes a long time to get those laws designed and implemented. You design them in Congress, and then the regulatory agencies are responsible for implementing the laws on how they apply to the institution. So it's a long process. And because I think it's been fluctuating so much, it's really hard to know how do we regulate it because it's been so up and down. And I think the question has been, is this really a product or a service that's going to take off as a long-term future product? And I think that's been the question is, are we talking about something that has no viability or should we be talking a little bit more earnestly about what that looks like and how we integrate that? And I think there are just people on both sides of the fence. I don't even have an opinion right now about whether I think it's going to sustain itself or not. 
but I think we are in an age where the next product is here. I don't know what the final version is going to look like. It obviously isn't anything we've seen yet, but I think it's going to start to nuance itself. And then once it gets to a place where it's nuanced, we can start to ask the question, how do we regulate it? But I don't know. This has been a roller coaster ride reading these articles. Yeah, it sure has. Now, it's fascinating on every level. Like you said, you have to see where it's going to land. Is it going to survive? How is it going to be structured? What is it going to be used for? And then you can start grappling with that 5, 10, 15 year journey of what laws you need. <laughs> and again, it's capitalism too, right? So it's a new idea. And this country's founded on new ideas. And some of them peter out and some of them take off. And it's going to be fun to watch. That's for sure. So we're also very averse to change and risk as far as investing funds that could be gone tomorrow. Sure. And if we look back historically, we've seen the same thing with electronic banking and online banking. And oh my gosh, I don't want to get involved in that. That's scary. Right. Now it's like it's just part of our daily routine, right? Yeah. Good point. Good comparison. So this has been a really precise and good update on this. Are there any other thoughts relative to the guidance or NCUA as it relates to this letter to credit unions and the guidance? Yeah, I think I want to answer your second question, right? What do we do? So what is risk-based and how do we deal with that with respect to these, again, these product services or persons and entities? And I think we have to go back to what do we do when we have a potential new member come in the door? We know that we're doing the re- we're, we're following through on the requirements of the customer identification program under the USA Patriot Act. And if you combine the equation is CIP, customer identification program, customer due diligence, CDD equals know your customer. So CIP plus CDD equals KYC. So how do we get to the KYC part? Well, the CIP, we know that institutions are doing because they have to. So verifying identity as part of that, they're getting some due diligence information. They're getting like occupation or employer. They're asking some of those basic questions. They're running check systems in some locations. They're doing their OFAC checks because they're required to do that. Fine and good. But it's that due diligence piece. The question is, do you do that at account opening or do you open the account and then move that into the back office where they then conduct due diligence? And people have a lot of different views on this. And my take on it is that the gatekeeping function at account opening is critical because we all know that marriage is easy, divorce is harder, hiring someone is easy, firing them is harder, renting or leasing to a tenant is easy, but evicting them is harder. So the more you do up front, the better off you're going to be, not only in bringing in somebody that is likely not to be laundering or financing terrorism, but also somebody who's not going to become administrative, an administrative nightmare for you, that you are constantly filing SARS on them, having to investigate and use resources for things you could have avoided. So I think the question is, when do you do it? The timing is critical, but I think it should be done up front before you establish that relationship. And then the question is, well, how do we do it? One of the things that institutions haven't done well historically is put in either some kind of risk scoring model where you say, okay, here are all the factors we're going to consider. Here's the weight we give each one. And then we're going to come up with a total score. And if you're above this score, you're high risk and either we don't want you or we're going to have to automatically move you into an annual enhanced due diligence review. But because of what you provide, we want to bring you on as a member, but we know we're going to have to really monitor you. Or you can say, you know what, high risk, we don't want that person here or that business here. So we're going to say no thanks. And so that's one of the things I do when I come in is I help them put into place this due diligence risk-based scoring process. And the other thing that process includes is asking questions around some of these higher risk factors within the examination manual. So do you have a privately owned ATM? Well, you can ask that question and some entities do, but what they don't do is define what that means. 
members aren't going to know. They're not usually sophisticated enough to know, well, yeah, you know, I have an ATM on site, but I don't empty it. I have a third party that does it, so it's not privately owned. Well, in fact, it may still be because they don't really understand what that phrase means. Right. Or you may have somebody, yes, I do have one, when in fact they don't. They just happen to have Chase's machine on site. So they're like, yeah, I have a privately owned ATM. So you may lose someone because you've not defined it and you may get someone who marks it incorrectly because they don't know what it means. So part of that is defining these terms for individuals and then also making it clear at the time of account opening that we have a policy here. We have a definitive statement that if you have what we've defined as a privately owned ATM because it's our policy not to have those accounts or it is our policy not to have a money service business. It's our policy not to have somebody that's doing pouch activity. We are making it clear to you that if we identify that going forward, we will be closing your account. These are the kind of things that aren't being done up front is what are the things that are a violation of your policy? The question is based on this statement from this joint statement, should they be? Maybe you should open yourself up a little bit more. And But if you want to keep them as policy violations, let's ask the right questions at account opening. Let's define those terms for people. Let's really figure out who we're dealing with, give a definitive policy statement, and then use this risk scoring model to figure out, is this person low, moderate, or high risk overall? And then if they're high risk, do we bring them in and do EDD, or do we just say, we're going to exclude you? But the individual factors themselves are not enough to make somebody high risk. And that to me is what's critical here is making sure that you are clear on who you want, who you don't want, and giving yourself a little bit more freedom to say, you know what, privately owned ATMs aren't so bad. Let's bring those into the fold and not make them a policy violation, but let's add them to our factors, to our risk-based approach. Let's bank them if everything else about them is fine. Let's bring them in. We'll have to monitor the cash activity, make sure it's normal, make sure it's reasonable for that type of business. We're going to have to do a little bit of work, but it's worth having them here because not only are they our member, but they're providing services to our community. And that's important to us as well. So there are a lot of things around this upfront process that I think are not handled well currently. And one of the things that has surprised me, particularly with credit unions, is that the NCUA has not historically been citing institutions for not having due diligence in place. And I think this joint statement also lets us know that they are going to start really looking at that, that you cannot bring someone in and not perform proper due diligence. And if they're high risk, also be performing your annual enhanced due diligence, which may require you to do site visits or get financial statements or bank statements. There's a lot that goes into this. And I think the statement is not only the level set, but I think for credit unions, it may also be a sign that, look, we have to start making sure this is in place. And so I think there may be another level of review coming as well. So hopefully that's not too much information. It just gives people enough to know that you got to do this. The question is, when do you want to do it? But be prepared that if you're opening accounts and doing it after the fact, you may find then that you have somebody that's a little bit harder to get rid of than they would have been if you had done all this work up front. That's fantastic advice. And I love the gatekeeper comparison. I'm curious, when someone engages you and you're walking through this and they're having to make that decision of when to do it, and you give those examples of it's easier to get married than divorced, and it's easier to hire than fire. I mean, if I heard, if this was my responsibility and I was in a credit union and we'd hired you and you came in and said that, I'd be like, all right, we don't even need to talk about it anymore. Let's do it when they come in the door. When you have that discussion with clients, is it something that they instantly see the light and they end up going at the front end or is it 80-20 or how does that play out when someone brings you on and you walk them through what their options are here? Well, it's interesting because again, I think human nature plays a big role in this, that we get so used to doing things a certain way that we don't stop to ask ourselves, if we were building it from scratch today, what would it look like? 
So I think a lot of it is that shock of, well, why didn't we think about that? Like, why didn't we consider that? And I think we put a lot of reliance on check systems, which doesn't tell us anything about someone except for their banking history. And that's really even limited. So we've relied on that as the primary gatekeeper instead of doing additional work. I talk to people about check systems and again, it's a useful tool, but people have figured it out. And so you'll have people coming to get a new account before their old one is closed and reported to check systems. So you won't see that closed account yet, but if you had waited two more weeks, it would have shown up. You also have people that if you have a lot of inquiries on check systems, it might be an indication that someone is going around to a number of institutions and maybe looking to commit fraud. The other thing I've noticed is a lot of institutions that don't use check systems, people find out about that, including employees and stuff. That information gets out. And I absolutely, I know of a credit union that did not use check systems and they found that members were coming in and commenting on that. Oh yeah, I'm here to open an account because I hear you don't do check systems. That to me is a red flag. And so what we were finding in the same institution is that not only were they not using check systems and people were coming in that couldn't get accounts elsewhere, but their own members who had been closed previously that they didn't report were getting new accounts, even though they had taken a loss at the hands of this person, they were opening a new account because they didn't even check their own records. So I think check systems, if people have it in place, it's become kind of a, oh, well, we feel pretty good, but it's not enough anymore. And I think we have to take those additional steps. And people don't stop to really think about that. And I think they've also historically put due diligence in the bucket of that's a BSA function. So that's a back office function. We don't want branches doing that. I say you don't have to have branches doing that. You can have BSA working with your branches up front because you guys are a team and putting together a really good tool that branches can use at inception to walk through the scoring methodology and make some determinations, but you're not in that alone. And I think that's been part of it is just that there's this connection between BSA and CDD. And so we just leave that to them. But this decision is not about BSA. It is not about the branches. It is about the institution. And so you have to act as an institution when you're doing these things and figure out, yeah, it's more work up front and it might take us a little bit longer to establish the relationship. But that's really what we want is we want to establish really great relationships with people and with businesses. We don't want to make these really quick knee-jerk decisions and either bring in somebody we ultimately are going to end up regretting or not let in somebody that we wish we had had. I tell institutions when they, you know, we go through this process, an example I use that's not directly related to banking is Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. She graduated third in her law school class from Stanford and William Rehnquist had graduated first. They had dated in law school, but when they both graduated, the best job she could get was as a secretary in a law office because she was female. And imagine how all of these people that rejected her and put her in these inferior roles felt when she was put on the Supreme Court. So we make judgment calls for lots of reasons, and we regret those decisions. Imagine being the person who said, I don't want Sandra Day O'Connor working in my law firm, and she becomes a justice. So we do a lot of things that we might regret down the road, but we can prevent some of that if we just have better conversations around what do we want to do, when do we want to do it, who should be doing it. We're just asking all the demonstrative questions and coming up with better answers versus just continuing on this apathetic path we have followed historically until somebody reminds us that, oh boy, there's another way to do this. And that's what I do is I just ask very basic questions and try and bring people back to a solution that may take more time upfront, that short-term sacrifice for long-term gains. I've always been about that. 
it's going to cost you more upfront. It's going to take more people. It's going to take more time. But your long-term benefit is that you have a relationship that you don't have to worry about. You may have to worry about it. Obviously, people can change. And that's the other thing too, Mark, is the third part of this is nobody's static. We're dynamic. Like you've changed jobs. I've changed jobs. We've changed geographic locations. We've changed the banks we do business with, the credit unions we do business with. Our income has changed. Our employment's changed. People are not static. They're very dynamic. So the hard part is updating this information on a routine basis to make sure that that person you brought in has remained in good standing with you and that you are evaluating them based on facts versus previous historical data. That's the hardest part is, again, having BSA and retail work together to get updates of this information. But I think that the reaction is just more of a, oh, yeah, that makes sense. How do we go back to that space? What would that look like for us? What makes the most sense for us? Because it's different for every institution. But again, it's good to have a dialogue and to ask questions and to have people really think about why do we do what we do? I mean, how many times have you walked someplace and you like hit a chair that is poorly placed in your living room and it takes you a long time and someone finally says, why don't you just move it? Well, duh, right? Yeah, of course I should just move it, but I haven't. And we'll just continue to deal with, again, that human condition of moving towards pleasure, moving away from pain until the pain becomes too great. We don't usually address things. We just let them go. And that's what happens with BSA as well, is we don't until we're in a position of pain stop to say, is there a better way? Should we think about this differently? It is really good every three to five years to ask yourself questions around why do we do what we do and does that still make sense? And institutions historically don't go through that process. A lot of great advice there. Very well said. And you're giving our listeners a lot to think about on all of these things. Deborah, I want to thank you for your time. If someone that's listening today hears this, and I think somebody probably will, and they go, hey, you know, I want to get in touch with Deborah and talk to her about how I can make my credit union better on any of these topics. What's the best way for them to reach you? They can certainly go out to my website, which is www.regulatoryarmor.com. My contact information is out there. I'm also on LinkedIn and my phone number is also available out on, I think, both of those locations. So they can reach me a number of channels and I'll be happy to see what I can do for them. As always, Mark, my pleasure to be here and love to talk about this stuff. And hopefully there's some good takeaways for people that, again, can help them continue to make their institution stronger and better and find themselves having more confidence and less stress around anything related to regulation and certainly risk management. You got it. Now, there's a lot of good takeaways here. I think this is going to be well received by my audience. And again, Deborah, thank you for your time. You're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks, Mark. You got it. And this is Mark Treichel signing off with another episode of With Flying Colors. I appreciate you listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com.